All right, Dave Player here on 720 WGN. Glad he could be with us. And welcome to our celebration of stand-up comedy. Chicago's own Pat McGann has been making us laugh for over 15 years, from Zanies to clubs across the country, touring with Sebastian Maniscalco, and will be performing at the Rouse Center for the Arts on Saturday, September 9th. And Pat is joining us in studio. How are you, pal? I am great, Dave. Anytime we can celebrate stand-up comedy. <laughs> right? Sitting down. <laughs> That's in right. a studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Absolutely. it's fantastic, man. I love that you're doing this, bringing some attention to stand-up. Right, right? Yeah. And, you know, from the contemporary to the classic. How's your summer been, by the way? Fantastic. Yeah. You know, I I live here in, in Chicago. Yeah. And it's when I'm not summer. here, I I profess all things Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Because it's getting, like, kicked everywhere you turn. Like, you tell someone you're from Chicago, like, oh, you, yeah, you got a gun? <laughs> you mentioned really it's the first thing out of their mouth it's insane. it's not capone because it's usually go oh yeah El capone chicago yeah i always tell them like more people were getting killed here in the 90s than now we just didn't talk about it we didn't talk about that's it. how good michael jordan was it's true it's very true it's very true um there was something in your and in, in one of your comedy shows that i thought about this past weekend because i took my son and and my girlfriend and her son to a water park Oh, yeah. Which was an adventure in hell. I mean, and I mean, it was funny. Like you mentioned certain things to me, and I looked, and he's, they're like, "Dad, are you coming in?" I'm like, "I had bathing suit on. I was ready to go." And then I saw the bandaid floating oh, yeah. down the river. And I'm like, "Not doing that." I'm good. Yeah, they just emptied it out <laughs> a half hour ago because someone took a dump in the kiddie pool. That's right. And don't you love that when they're oh like, you guys got to get out. Someone went to the bathroom in here. And then everyone's like, all right, we're going to go get some food. We'll <laughs> take a break. Gross. We'll get something to eat. And then just let us know when we can dive back in. Because who doesn't in extreme humidity want a slice of pizza made by the, <laughs> exactly. by the pool people? I mean, really, right? I mean, that is why you go to the, the water park. It's the dining experience <laughs> is always, yeah. you know, standing yeah. behind line. Someone yeah. without a shirt on. Yeah. Ugh. Dripping wet. Oh, man. Gets the appetite going. I, I lasted in there 11 minutes and like, there's an outdoor pool. I'm like, nah, I'm going to go out there. Yeah. We're heading out in that direction. But there's there's diapers out there. There's like, oh, God, what is floating in this? Oh, you know, we've got a high level of chlorine and everything that cleans all this up. Sure you do. Never matches the billboard. <laughs> never matches no. the commercial. No. No, no. But that's nice that you got out. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, You know, vacations. We didn't do a lot of, like, traveling this summer. Did you take the kids anywhere this summer? Were you able to get out? Or you you know you're on the road a lot. I rented a place up in Michigan for, like, a week. Okay. And my parents came up, my sister. Oh, that's nice. um, Which is a little bit of a departure, because I always like to take them places, like, to learn stuff. Like, that's what my parents did. We yeah, would go sure. to like, you know, yeah. like I took him to DC yeah. not too long ago. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, took him to Arlington Cemetery. I was like, hey, look at this. This is all the sacrifice. This is why we have what we have. And my son's just like, my feet hurt. <laughs> yeah. My feet yeah. are killing me. Yeah. Yeah. So hilly. But I do love DC, but when we were kids, I mean, that's, it, we were going to different, pl- I didn't go to DC. I was like downstate Illinois looking at the world's largest wind chime. Oh, that's great, man. <laughs> Is it? I mean, <laughs> where do I want to go downstate? I, Metropolis, I hear. They have like in oh. downstate Illinois, they have like a Superman thing. But you know where oh. I want to go? I want to go to Alton, Illinois and see the oh. uh, Robert Wadlow statue, like the the tallest man. Oh, He was from Illinois. Is that off of Route 66? Because that's and, what it sounds like to me. And my, I don't know. If it, it might be. Yeah, Alton. Yeah. But it's like on the way to Springfield, 
I think you shoot out. It's like 40 minutes off the highway. So it's a little bit of a commitment. I want my kids to be with me because they're really into like, you know, facts. <laughs> Is and, that right though? And like the Guinness book. And okay. Like, you know, do right. you remember that phase at all? Like kids just go through yeah. like, you know, dad, you know, how, when you blink your eyes, your, go, your eyelid goes like 600 miles an hour. Like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> My eleven-year-old's right there. I get you. Yeah, they come off of YouTube. and yeah. they just want to spit facts. He's like, he's like, here, I got some flag f- flashcards. Like, you know, here, let me. What, what country is this? I'm like, I don't know, Brazil. I have no idea. But you're right. You're totally right. So they're into this right now. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. They're kind of into learning and uh, right. sharing knowledge. I don't okay. know when that stops. I guess it's just. Depends on how much you encourage it. Yeah, maybe, that's true. Maybe that's mo- true. Most that's parents true. are probably like, shut up, get out of my face. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, if you foster that, maybe. It, it, but they're, that's the, the phase they're in. But, but I've heard you talk about this, too. Like, when we were kids, we were just shoved in the car. Didn't know where we were going, really. Wasn't given the itinerary of what we were doing. We were just, we just were driving somewhere. Yeah, that's how the vacation began. For hours. Like an end. abduction. <laughs> it was an abduction. Like, where are we going? Yeah. Out of state. Like, did someone pack for me? Like, yeah, your suitcase is in the trunk. Like, well, I don't even know what I'm... You had no say. No say. No vote. No vote whatsoever. And I think what's funny about that is, like, I will go back and make fun of my parents for doing things like that and shoving us in the back of the station wagon, listening to FM 100 and Lou Rawls singing or whatever. And you'd be like, oh, my God, what's happening here? <laughs> but I went to Cincinnati to take my daughter to look at a couple colleges. And I'm like, we got a few hours to kill. And I'm looking online. I'm like, oh, the American Sign Neon Museum is here. Really? And I didn't tell her because she'd oh, be yeah. like, yeah, I'm not going. I'm not going. And pulled up and there's this massive uh, Holiday Inn, the old Holiday Inn signs with the blinking oh, yeah. lights and stuff. And I'm like, this is cool. She's like, what are we doing? Oh. There, I could think of, where, is there a mall around here? Is there somewhere I can shop? Isn't like, it unbelievable? No. They just <laughs> no. literally melt at any thought you share. Yeah. Like, that's what I figured out. Like, I can't even say certain things to my kids. Like, you know mm. what I was thinking? They're like, oh. <laughs> You would talk. He was thinking. <laughs> you can't like pitch him an idea. You know, you can't float any. Hey, you know, I no. got an idea. Ugh. No, no. This I'm like, but guy. look, it's a Howard Johnson sign. Look how cool this is. She's like, I, I don't know. I would. I don't even know what. Are that those is. gone now? I haven't thought of that for a while. The you know, the I Hojo's, the Hojo restaurants. I think it was a Hojo restaurant sign because I guess that was the thing before we were born in the '60s. You yeah, go to, that was like the dinner out. Let's go to Howard Johnson's for dinner, of course. Yeah, they were all over the place. They were all over the place. Where'd you go? What schools were you looking at? Did you go to Dayton? Did you go to UD? No, we went to University of Miami, Ohio, and Xavier. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Did you go to Dayton? I went to Dayton. Oh, yeah. so okay. Right in that little triangle of yeah. uh, great yeah. schools there. Yeah, okay. All right. She wants to do design. Photo- photo- what did you study in school? I studied history. Oh. I majored in history. Okay. Was yeah. that because of the trips your family forced you on when you were a child? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to show them yeah. the trip to Williamsburg <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. paid off. <laughs> um, I'm going to learn how to churn butter. Kids back in school? Uh, kids are back. They, they go back early now, they don't do. they? Yeah. I yeah. kind of wish they didn't. Yeah. It but ends too early. It's like, isn't it easier to learn now? Everyone's going to work less. Yeah. Why are they going to school more? Are your kids in Catholic school? They're in Catholic school. Is it air conditioned? Because that's another they thing. They do have oh, it okay. this year. Yeah. Us two window units think, from the 60s, but they're okay. That's beautiful. I mean, that's a... <laughs> Game changer. Last year, I think, was the first year they had it, or maybe two years ago. Um, but yeah, they're, it's my daughter's taking math twice a day. Yeah, what? Yeah, they're teaching math twice wow. a day now. Yeah. It's like, you, you can't catch up with, you, with, with a calculator. With, well, yeah. Or with <laughs> Or with China. the pandemic, by the way. You well, can't. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what they're trying to yeah, do, catch yeah. up with that. Yeah. But they're getting back to the basics 
and I, this is actually something I was talking about in my act too. Like, you, you know, when you see people now, you don't make a lot of eye contact. Like we're making eye contact yes, right now, yeah, right? We and we both seem pretty comfortable about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of people don't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you don't make eye contact with people like you used to. Certain generations don't even know how to do that. So this is the focus at my kid's school this year. Say hi. Wow. Say hi to each other. Say hi to adults. And I was talking about, like I said, I was saying you got to talk to adults like you talk to yeah. kids now. Like say hello. Yeah. Say hi. Because now they're like so dive into a building and they freak out. Mine's firm handshake, eye contact. Yeah. Because that's important. That's going to be a move. Yeah. That's how guys are going to meet girls, how, how girls are going to meet guys. They're just going to make eye contact. Yeah. Give them a handwritten letter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my you know? God. I mean, again. And be like, wow, this person really cares about me. <laughs> exactly. That's lost on a generation or two. Yeah. At least. Um, first day of school bunch of parents in the parking lot hey we're gonna go have breakfast um i thought ah, oh, 45 minutes i'll i'll do this i'll delay going into work doing whatever and oh no the place it's a bar the place was packed it was breakfast but it was buckets of mimosas and bloody marys until the kids got picked up from school oh, i can't that's day smart. drink I can't. <laughs> that is really brilliant you guys go ahead we're gonna go drink for four hours and then we'll pick you up yeah, well, a couple of them were like, I, I didn't drink. I had one, and and they're like, are you are you gonna go now? And it's a half day. Are you gonna? Ah, they drove their bikes. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and they know how to get in the house. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. So you're not going home? No, no, no. Maybe around five. Okay. First day of school <laughs> turns out to be all about the parents. It is. It is. It is. That's where we're at too. It is. There's no question. But day drinking is not my thing. It's that's hard to do. I can't uh, keep up with it. You know, I kind of quit drinking during the during the oh, pandy. Oh, smart. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. that's what, what I was. Pandy. I was doing it a lot. Okay. Which is embarrassing looking uh, back. Everybody was kind of kind of like, hey, our generation, let's step up. Yeah. Let's all get on the same page. Like, nah, I'm gonna get banged up <laughs> in my basement. <laughs> yeah. Our grandparents did. Yeah, I was I was drinking under a blanket at the end, which oh, is embarrassing. Wow! Okay. Like pull the cover up. Yeah, Pickles. finish off a bottle watching QVC. <laughs> that was my rock bottom. That was it. Now I, I you know what I'll do now is I'll yeah. have a gummy. Oh, okay. Some people don't like that though either. Yeah. They get like, oh, marijuana. Like you had thirty Miller Lights last night. <laughs> yeah, they're judging. Yeah, they're judging. I had a CBD drink. It just kind of lowers the bar. Not when I'm on air, of course lowers the bar a little bit and they're like oh you're doing that i'm like you had like five margaritas the other day when i saw you on your porch and it's just the cbd <laughs> yeah. that's fine it's calming very judgy that's what happens it calm well that's the thing you get judgy when you drink it's you true can chill out a little bit you know like i never get like angry or you know i would get dismissive especially my kids come around me like you know get away you know mm-hmm on a gummy, that's different. Yeah. On a gummy, you're like, your kid's coming. Like, where are you going? Legos? You're not doing I cocaine. Do, I want to do some Legos. You're not doing on the table. Yeah. On the back of a stripper while you're at home. I mean, <laughs> you're not doing any of that. All right. So, Pat McGann, we're doing our stand-up comedy special. He is going to be at the Rouse Center for the Arts on Saturday, September 9th. RouseCenter.org is where you can get tickets. And there's more with Pat next here on 720 WGN. All right. It's our stand-up comedy radio special. We're talking to comedian Pat McGann. Pat will be performing the Rouse Center for the Arts on Saturday, September 9th. All right, so we're talking about more legendary comedians and so forth. So, like, who were your influences? Oh, wow. You know, I kind of came up during the 80s. The first oh. stand-up special I really saw yeah. was 
Delirious, Eddie Murphy. Oh, yeah. Should not have been watching it. I was probably eight. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And it was at a... Uh, was that the Red Leather? You were talking about Holiday Inn earlier. Yeah. This is like a Holodome outside of Milwaukee. Those the entire big. South Side went up there for Irish Fest. Yeah. Because you know, we didn't have enough. It was Irish Fest every weekend in our neighborhood. And they're like, hey, they're having one in Wisconsin. Let's go. So we went up. And, um, you know, the parents are doing their thing. And all the kids are in one room. And, you know, there's some high school kids yeah. leading it. Yeah. So I just remember watching that and, you know, you couldn't even hear everything, but just seeing one guy up there and everybody, yeah. that kind of stuck with me. Was that his le- red leather yeah. thing that he did yeah, on stage? Yeah, that was the red. And then, uh, you know, my parents would go to New York City and come back and talk about how they went to comedy shows. Like my, my mom was in the Seinfeld before his sitcom, hmm. you know, when he would come on Carson. Yeah. I can remember her saying, oh, one of my favorite comics is on tonight. And... um you know, Letterman would have comedians yeah, on. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so it was really like consuming everything that was kind of right there. Yeah. Saturday Night Live was huge during yep. the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Um, but stand up wise, I, w- I would say Seinfeld, Eddie Murphy. Um, I remember when Roseanne came out. Oh yeah, and it was like, huge who is on the she? Tonight show. Oh yeah, it's like she's a comic. She's stand up, and then she got you know she had the show. So that was someone where it's like I, I got to know them from the show, and then you know learn about their stand-up but carson was the like if you did carson your your career was kind of made oh yeah you definitely know, leno uh, shandling uh letterman himself joan rivers they all started on there but you got your big break you got that big break and then he gave you a thumbs up or a okay or come talk to me like uh, drew carey used to talk about it. he's like when i got the thumbs up and come over here he goes you know I, I, I pretty much loaded my pants before i walked and sat down and talked to the king of late night then you got the prices right the next day <laughs> the price is right he was uh, which he's gonna have that destined. job for life obviously yeah. he's gonna have that for life any of the early comedians did you go back on and listen to prior or you know bill cosby and i know there's you know, obviously controversy surrounding that, but when you look at the comedy himself, of course it was great. And Carlin, I mean, some of Carlin's albums are just legendary. Well, I do remember watching uh, Bill Cosby himself. Like, mm-hmm. there was a family that was watching it in my neighborhood, and, you know, I just knew who he was because of Fat Albert and yeah. uh, then the mm-hmm. Cosby show. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember seeing snippets of George Carlin, Joan Rivers. Um, yeah. You know, so definitely, like, you would go back and see uh, older acts and, yeah. you know, have an appreciation for how yeah. long. Because it's not even that old of a thing. No, it's not. Really. No. No. In fact, I was as you were talking about Bob Newhart, I mean, he was really one of the first record albums. I think literally Guns N' Roses took him out of first, like, best-selling comedy album of all time, or best-selling album of all time was Bob over the years. And then Guns N' Roses came in, and, he, and Bob used to say to me, I called Axe. You talked about it a little bit. But you had an experience with Is that him. what it was? It was Bob Newhart and then Guns and Roses. Appetite for Destruction? <laughs> Something like that. I swear to God, yeah. I never heard that. No, That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got to, uh, I crossed paths with Bob Newhart when I was hosting the Chicago Emmys, the Midwest oh, yeah. Emmys. Right, right. And, uh, you know, he was one of their first hosts. And yeah. that's when it was True. maybe a little bit bigger. It was yeah. on television and. Uh, sure. He uh, did a, uh, we did a virtual thing together and he was so warm, like talking to him before we started taping yeah. and then a little bit of communication after. And then, uh, you know, I sent him a note and thanked him. He wrote me back. Just fantastic guy. And that's another, uh, you know, Chicago guy that when I was younger, just hearing that, right? Yeah. Like this guy's from Chicago and seeing 
the show and, and the recognizable exterior shots. Oh, the Bob Newhart show. Yeah, no of question. Chicago. He was going nowhere, by the way. Did you ever see yeah. that opening? He's going south. He's going west. He's going... Like, how did you ever get home? No Bob. one ever walked by that Sun-Times building. <laughs> no one ever did. That never went anywhere. <laughs> no, it never did. But you're talking about it's, you know, stand-up is fairly new, so... I was doing some research and trying to f- dig far back, and there was one source that said, well, I mean, one of the comic lecturers of the time of the late 19th century was Mark Twain. Yeah. And he would do some comedy uh, going out there. And then it was really this Catskills, right, in the Borscht Belt in the 30s and 40s that you had these guys, you know, like you know, Henny Youngman, you know, uh, Take My Wife, Please, yep. that started there. But the the one that they say really established stand-up comedy was was Bob Hope. No joke. And doing yeah. all the USO tours and being on stage and yeah. entertaining the troops and all that other stuff. He was standing up there and, and telling jokes. Another, another Midwest guy. I think he's from like Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I know vaudeville, the touring of uh, those small theaters and you know live performances and having someone. A lot of times I think comedy would like break open the vaudeville show. True. You know, welcome Very everyone. And right. then kind of go into hosting. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I also heard that about Mark Twain, and that's pretty fascinating, right? That yeah, he yeah. was uh, really like the first stand-up. Doing shtick. Yeah, touring, doing, doing, doing spoken word stuff. But the earliest headliners that probably more format you know, stand-up comedy today was probably Newhart, uh, Jonathan Winters, Dick Gregory, yeah. uh, Lenny Bruce. I mean, those are the, the guys that really broke the mold and started putting out albums. That was the big deal. I mean, in town here, I do know the history of like Mr. Kelly's. Mr. Kelly's, yeah. And hearing about that place, which yeah. was music... Yeah, spoken word, yeah. comedy. That's right. And then also the Playboy clubs throughout oh, yeah. the country oh, yeah. were a venue because there weren't comedy clubs. I mean, the oldest comedy clubs in the country are mid seventies. That's true. And up. Zanies is one of them. Absolutely. And we're lucky to have that place. Luckily. That's been there since nineteen seventy eight. That's kind of where I got my start. I was a house MC there. I mean, they're open every night of the week for live stand-up. That's incredible. It is incredible. And um, they've been there since 78. I think there's two older clubs in the country. And one is in uh, New York and one's in LA. Los Angeles, yeah. Well, you talk about the Playboy Clubs. Like, I love the Grand Geneva. I love the water park and everything there. That's great. But that was the Playboy Club. Oh, what? oh yeah, yeah. That's where it was, that right? That was the Playboy Club. Like, I wish it was still there. <laughs> yeah. Like some adulting up there. Go have a Manhattan and watch a comic comedian on stage, you know? Yeah. I mean, I always thought that that would be coming back at some point, that experience. Going out, have dinner, and there's a variety show where there's a comic and, you know, I don't know what else you have. Balloon animals. I always thought a Mr. Kelly's would open again in yeah. some format. And I hope that still happens. But tonight we're celebrating stand-up comedy. So we're going to welcome Tommy Dreesen. He's also coming to town. Uh, Richard Lewis, who got his start uh, really on Carson and then Letterman. Tom Papa, director, producer, screenwriter Judd Apatow will celebrate the life of Gary Shandling. Kelly Carlin, George Carlin's daughter, will share stories of her late father. And then we're going to wrap up things. I spoke to Joan Rivers uh, maybe a month before she passed away back in 2014. And no. It's not a sign of who I have on the show. <laughs> I get that all the time. But it was one of her final interviews, and I remember saying yeah, off could, air. Could you want to tell everyone what the what the rumor is, the <laughs> reputation, yeah. that Dave talks to people and then they perish then they shortly die. after? <laughs> They're dead. It's, it's happened a bunch of times. I'm, I'm the go-to for obits, for sure, <laughs> for sure here. But Joan, I remember talking to her off air, and I said, I'm really excited about this. Like, grew up watching, like when I heard you were filling in for Carson, I'd get excited, whatever. I said, I'm excited to have you on. She's like, yeah, let's see what you think after the interview's over. 
oh, like really? very not that confident, like a little self-deprecating, but she was funny as hell. So we're going to play that as well. And again, Pat McCann is at the uh, Rouse Center on Saturday, September 9th. And for tickets, you can visit RouseCenter.org. And you're going to stick around a little bit through the show, which I appreciate. Yeah, for sure. All right. And we'll do some more. We're celebrating stand-up. We're celebrating stand-up. And we'll do that after the news next year on 720 WGN. All right. Comedy legend in Harvey, Illinois' own Tom Dreesen is returning to the Chicagoland area on Friday, September 15th at Uptown Social in Michigan City. And then in Lake Forest at the John and Nancy Hughes Theater for his The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh on Sunday, September 17th. A couple years back, he released his memoir, Still Standing, His Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra. And you can also hear Tom now and then on the Sinatra Hours, early Sunday mornings, right here on 720 WGN. And Tommy Dreesen joins us on the line. Tommy, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great, Dave. I'm doing great. And the Cubs won last night. (laughs) The Cubs won. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, there's lots to catch up on. You know, speaking of the of the cubbies i you know we were just talking by design you're always in town in september it's a great time to be at a ball game at wrigley and usually usually throughout the first pitch don't you yeah i'm doing it september 8th i'm throwing out the first pitch and i'm singing the seventh inning you know take me out to the ball game last year it was really interesting i i uh, i was contacted i had two women fans of mine been contacting me for years and they were telling me their mother babysat for me oh. and when she used to change my diapers on the bar where my mother was a bartender Damn her name is mary cook and so anyhow they said uh you know we're bringing her to the game that you're you know bringing her in from florida to the game that you're throwing out the first pitch would you mind coming to our seats and take a picture with our mom she's 100 years old oh my God. so i I go to uh, the general manager, you know, and I say, hey, uh, uh, I've got a woman here. She's been a Cub fan all of her life, and she's 100 years old. Could I take her out to the mound with me? And he said, well, is she mobile? I said, that's a good question. So I called the daughters. I said, could your mom walk out to the mound? They said, walk. She could run out to the mound. (laughs) I love that. And she ran out there, and she was so excited. You know, uh, she's been a Cub fan all of her life. And they put on the announcement board that Mary Cook, my former babysitter, was – uh, you know, going out to the mound with me, and she kissed her hand and kissed the mound. She was so excited. She tossed the ball to me, you know. Wow. She, that, that was really fun. What a cool thing to do. What a cool thing. <laughs> Changing your diaper on a bar. You got endless stories, my friend. <laughs> you do. I, I, That's a good I, one. I really don't remember that, but, you, but, <laughs> but I, I checked it out with my family members. They said, oh, yeah, she was your baby. Amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, you know what? As the season winds down, I mean, the Cubs were a, a better team this season, but, you know, we were talking off air. Pitching is always the issue, isn't it? In every team in baseball at this time of the year, uh, it's the pitching that has to hold up. And, of course, the Cubs need a little, they need, you know, like every team, they need stronger pitching. But they've got a great offensive team and they've got a great defensive team. So I'm, I'm, uh, it's exciting to watch them play. But I, I talked to Ned Coletti yesterday, who used to be with the Cubs. Yeah. Him and I have lunch all the time. He was a general manager for the Dodgers for eight years. And he was saying that Atlanta and the, the Dodgers are so deep and so far in front, you know, that they're resting their, you know, they're resting their, their players for the postseason. You yeah. know, they've got that advantage. They do. They absolutely do. And then you're coming back here, and how exciting to be back in Chicago and back on stage. Yeah, I, I, I always love performing. You know, I, I still love doing stand-up comedy. It's still a lot of fun to me. Even when I'm off the road, I go to the comedy store, I go to the Laugh Factory and try out new material, you know. So it's still a lot of fun for me. But when I go to home, when I go to Chicago, it's even more fun because yeah. it's coming home. And, and I'm, you know, and Chicago has always been so supportive of me my whole career. This is my 
third year in show business, wow. you know. Um, and uh, and, to, and the one-man show, the man who made Sinatra laugh, it's stand-up comedy, but of course, as you know, it's, I, I segue to a bar with a bottle of Jack Daniels on a bar, which was strength, strength of choice, and I, I start telling stories, and pictures come on the screen, authenticating the stories, as well as a, a, a video of Frank and I together, you know. No, it's it's always classic, and it's always you always have amazing stories, and you always have different stories too. So that's what I love about seeing the act, and that's what I love about talking to you, and and also reading your book as well. But you have one of my favorite stories uh, was also in your book about flying to Chicago with Frank and how excited he was as the plane was coming in. Yeah, we, you know, we left Cincinnati. I had been with Frank a couple of years at that time, and that we. Uh, we performed at Riverfront uh, Arena in Cincinnati, you know, a 20,000-people arena. And, uh, and I, I recall that night so well because I had been touring with him for a couple of years and just almost taking it for granted that I was touring with this great legend that when I was a little boy shining shoes in Harvey, uh, you know, on my hands and knees, he was on all the jukeboxes, you know. Sure. When I came out of the service, tending bar, I wasn't in show business. He was on the jukebox. Come fly with me, and you know I'm flying with him now. You know all over the, all over the world. <laughs> right. But we were coming in Chicago, and they had spent like eight million dollars renovating the Chicago theater, uh, and it was just it, it was a grand opening. And Frank was talking about it on the jet. He said, yeah, "Tell me that we're going to go back to Chicago theater, and how much he loves Chicago and everything." And all of a sudden, it hit me that oh my God, I'm flying back to Chicago, my hometown. Mm-hmm. My name's going to be on the marquee with Frank Sinatra. And it hit me, and I was so, I couldn't talk. And he kept talking, and I'm glad, because I think I would have, tears would have come, you know. Yeah. I was so choked up with the emotion that it hit me. that I, I used to shine shoes in Harvey and take the IC downtown and go by the Chicago Theater sometimes and try to shine shoes for people waiting outside and coming out at intermission, because they tip better down there than they did in Harvey. You mm-hmm. know? And I'd see the people on the marquee. And all of this was coming back into reality to me. And, and I, it's a moment I will never forget, and it never happened to me again, but it was just an overwhelming moment, you know. Well, I'm going to ask you this. Like, you know, in those early days, you were also working construction. His music was really about the working class. A lot of his music was. Um, but listening to Sinatra and then being able to, to travel with him and open for him all those years that you you did that, we're actually celebrating stand-up comedy tonight. Like, who were some of your influence on the comedy side that made you want to become a comedian? Well, first of all, when I was a little boy shining shoes in all the bars, uh, my mom was a bartender in one of the bars, and I would go there last. There were 36 taverns in Harvey, but there were eight in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so wow. I would go to her, the tavern. She was tending bar at last, waiting for the shifts to change so I could go back out to the bars. And my uncle, uh, her brother-in-law, my uncle Frank Pulisi, he told jokes behind the bar. And I would watch him tell these jokes, and it fascinated me, you know, that this guy with his vocabulary and his vernacular could cause this sound to come out of everybody's body and, and just fill the room like electricity and unite everybody. And I just was fascinated with that. And I love telling jokes. And, and I used to tell some of his jokes, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But, and then, then as a little boy, we, we, I, we were poor. We had eight, I had, there were eight of us children. We lived in a shack. So we didn't have a TV. All the other people had TV, but we had an old radio. And I used to listen to Bob Hope on the radio and Jack Benny. Sure. And, and uh, th- they were the kind of comedians that said, wow, that I... I wanted to be like, especially the other. I mean, Hope, I, years later, I, I toured with Hope and I met Jack Benny, uh, thanks to Irv Cupson in Chicago. Wow, where yeah. Took me on with uh, Jack. But, but Bob Hope and I, his locker is next to mine at Lakeside, where I'm a member at Lakeside Country Club. 
his locker was next to mine, and, and I knew him. And I, you know, it, it was just all those things are all what you call uh, uh, those moments of, uh, uh, you know, the full circle moments. Yeah, too. yeah, no kidding, no kidding. I was going to say September '69 is really when you you went on stage for the first time, but you were working Playboy clubs. But then came Mr. Kelly's, which is now you know Gibson's in in Chicago. But playing Mr. Kelly's at that time was the thing to do. I mean, that 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 said that you made it on some level, right? On the level in Chicago, if you made it to Mr. Kelly's, you made it to the big time. You know, and that's when your goal, as we were starting out, there were no comedy clubs in Chicago. You know, Tim Reed and I were a comedy team. Right. We were America's first black and white comedy team in history shows. We were the last. There's never been one since. Right. So when we started out, there weren't any comedy clubs in America. So we had to work what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs, as well as we eventually got on the Playboy Circuit. But in Chicago, it was the High Chaparral, <clears throat> the Burning Spear, uh, the Guys and Gals Lounge, uh, the Cotton Club, uh, all black clubs. And then we worked all white clubs as well. Uh, but we finally made it. To, we always dreamed, let's get to Mr. Kelly's, and we made it to Mr. Kelly's. And then I later worked there as a single as well. That was, you know, every time I go into Gibson's, I look, I know exactly where the stage was, you know, and, and when you go upstairs, that used to be where the dressing rooms were. It brings back, it sits, uh, brings back such fond memories. There, there's a lot of great pics on that wall going up the stairs too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the wall of fame there in Chicago. It is. You know, you started working at the comedy store where you made some lifelong friends there, right? When I when the team broke up in 1975, when the team broke up in 75, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? Have you ever been on Johnny Carson? So if you haven't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. You know, Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show, and he got a sitcom the next day. Yeah. So all the comedians were migrating. How do you get on The Tonight Show? you got to go out to the West Coast and showcase. <clears throat> so the comedy store on Sunset Boulevard was the hottest place for comedy in America, because people were getting discovered there every night. So to get on there, you know, when I went out there, I ended up broken, sleeping in a car, I was hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. begging to work for free. <clears throat> but when I finally got an audition and passed it, and the owner, Mitchie Shore, put me on a regular schedule, later the Tonight Show came to see me. You know, and of course, I was on stage at, in those nights uh, with all these unknown comedians. You know, uh, <clears throat> David Letterman, Jay Leno, uh, Elaine Boozler, Robin Williams, uh, Gallagher, Michael Keaton, you know, the girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger, you know. Wow. I, I don't know where they are today, but I'm on the Dave <laughs> Flyer show. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going there. Um, you were talking about the Tonight Show with Carson. Ed McMahon gave you some really great advice before you went on stage, didn't he? Yeah, but you know, you're, you, you're, you really do your homework. You, yeah. <laughs> you read the book. I, I did. I, uh, I appreciate that because I've hosted shows. TV shows and, and radio shows, and, and, and I always know a, a host when he's done his homework, and I used to do mine you know, on my upcoming guests. But yeah, Ed McMahon, when I, I when I went to do my first appearance on The Tonight Show, you know, they put you in makeup, they take you up to your dressing room, and then they bring you down to the green room, and, and from there you go on. But I got bumped. They ran out of time. They ran out of time three times in a row. I'd go back every week. Yeah. And finally, on the fourth time I was there, I was in the, dress, in the makeup room, and Fred DeCorda with the Producer came yeah. in the makeup room. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> right. <laughs> 28 million people watched. I'm in my dressing room, and Ed McMahon came out, and he, he told me something that I never forgot. He said, Tommy, have fun, and they'll have fun. Have fun when you walk out there. No matter what's going on inside you, 
you act like you're having fun, you know, and so with your material, you know, so <clears throat> from that point on, I've, I've given that advice to other young comedians. And every night before I walk on stage, I say to myself, have fun. Yeah. Have some fun. Let's go have some fun. Did you hear what you just said, though? 28 million people. There is no show. There is no, I mean, I guess social media to a degree, but to have 28 million people and know their eyeballs are on you and know you're paying attention. Because on social media, you're flipping through, you're getting little snippets, you're not watching a whole show, you're not watching a whole set. But 28 million people at that time were sitting down and watching the same show and seeing you make your de- debut. I mean, it's, that's incredible. Not only that, all the buyers from Las Vegas used to watch that show in those days. Mm. All the uh, corporate people that hired c- comedians for corporations watched that show. Uh, agents, managers, uh, sitcom, pe- people looking for comedians on sitcoms. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so not only that, but my mom had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois, watching the show, so if I bomb, I couldn't even go back home. You know? <laughs> it, it was the pressure... Is enormous. Yeah. I can't even describe to you standing behind that curtain, and they're in commercial break, and now you're getting ready to go on, and all of a sudden, the, and Doc Severinsen's playing the music because they're in commercial. Now the music stops, and your heart stops. Yeah, yeah. Whoa! And yeah. the lights come up on the curtain, and you're, you're about ready to walk out there. And there's a song called "One Moment in Time" that Whitney Houston sang, but those lyrics bring home <clears throat> that all of my dreams are a heartbeat away, and the answers are all up to me. <laughs> yeah, you're at. that's a yeah, cool, yeah. great song. More great stories, by the way, with Tommy Dreesen. And, uh, more great stories with Tommy Dreesen when we come back here on 720 WGN. Day Flyer 720 WGN. We're talking to my pal Tommy Dreesen, returning to the Chicagoland area on Friday, September 15th at Uptown Social in Michigan City, and then in Lake Forest at the John and Nancy Hughes Theater for his The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh on Sunday, September 17th. And you can visit TomDreesen.com for more information. So you've noted that Mitzi Shore gave you the big break at the Comedy Store. Carson gave you the huge break on The Tonight Show. But it was Sammy Davis Jr. that gave you a boost as a natural yeah. touring act, right? Yeah. I, Sammy had a TV show called Sammy and Company, and I appeared on it and, and just had a hot set. And uh, he said, I'm going to take you on the road with me. And he did. And in, in, in to all around the country. And, and uh, um, eventually to the Mill Run Theater in Chicago. And oh, uh, yeah. when I was at the Mill Run Theater, uh, he... He came backstage one day and he said, uh, hey, have you ever worked Las Vegas? And, of course, I, I hadn't. And that's your dream as a stand-up comedian to get to Vegas in those days. And he said, I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, you opened there with, for me in January. And he took me there to Vegas and, and put my, made sure my name was put on the marquee. And it was, it was an incredible time. Because he was the, the consummate professional yeah. entertainer. And to sit in the wings night after night and watch this man do his magic was like going to, uh, you know, show business 101 school, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, pretty much hanging out with the Rat Pack, so to speak. I mean, really, all of all of them, but separately even. And you toured for with Frank for years. I mean, you became friends. But it's something you never, ever took for granted, right? No, you know, I, I toured with Sammy for years, and then I toured with Gladys Knight and the Pips and Natalie Cole and Mac Davis and Tony Orlando and Don and Frankie Avalon and James Darren and... Uh, uh, and, and eventually Smokey Robinson and touring with Smokey for years. These are the artists. And then I got to Frank, you know, and, and I was doing the Dean Martin roast and, you know, I played golf with Dean and, and uh, we became friends. I mean, but so I, I, met, I was meeting them separately and then sometimes together at Frank's home to be in that rarefied air for a kid from Harvey, Illinois was it's beyond surreal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There were so many times I wanted to pinch myself, you know, that, and the, and, and the wonderful thing about these men 
and, and, the, and the people that would go to Frank Sinatra's compound down in Rancho Mirage, all the big stars, they talked to you like an equal, even though you knew in your heart you weren't. But, you know, the Gregory Pecks and the Kirk Douglases and uh, Jack Lemmon, you know, tell me, uh, how did you get interested in stand-up comedy? And, and I want to ask them about, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Their, their career. These are the people I saw in the movies back in Harvey, Illinois, at the Harvey Theater in Harvey, Illinois. And now I was, you know, having dinner with them and talking to them about baseball and whatever, you know. It was all surreal. You, know? you have a great story about that first time Frank invited you to come hang at his place in Palm Springs. And again, this is a time not only are you opening for him, but now he invites you over. Share that story. Well, I, 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 I ended up staying at his home like six times a year, his compound down in Rancho Mirage, which was just when you drove inside that compound, it was a whole new world. Um, you know, the security gates and they had bungalows all along the outer perimeters named after his songs, you know, New York, New York, Strangers in a Night, Tender Trap, My Way. You know, his house guests were, like I say, Gregory Peck and uh, Kirk Douglas and, and their wives, you know, and, and uh, Jack Lemon, mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood. Um, and whoever he was dating at the time, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, plus yeah. Ad- Admiral Shepard and first man in space, <clears throat> Isaac Stern, all these interesting people. And at nighttime you would have dinner and then afterward to be, the men would sit around and women would finally go to bed and Frank would stay up till dawn, you know, of course. And so, so it was so interesting. But, uh, one, one of the, I think the story you're talking about is the ambassador from Italy. Is that the story uh-huh, you're talking uh-huh. about? Yeah. Well, at, at the first time I went there, all these, after the first night cocktail party, the next uh, day there was a brunch. And there was all these stars that I just mentioned in the room, Robert Wagner and Joe St. John, Angie Dickens and all them. And Frank, and, uh, and there was the ambassador from Italy was there and his wife. And Frank announces at this brunch, I'm going to drive the ambassador and his wife to the airport. Who wants to go with me? And the room emptied in a second. And all those people was gone. And all of a sudden, I was the only one in the yeah. room with Frank. And I said, well, I'll, I'll go with you, Frank. He said, come on, Tommy, let's go. Wow. So we go outside. And he had, a, he had many cars, but Lee Iacocca had given him a station wagon. So he said, Tom, you ride in the back with the ambassador's wife. And, uh, and he, he, the ambassador got in the front with Frank. And we're taking him out to a private jet out in the Palm Springs airport. So Frank goes out. You go, you go out the security gate. Well, the security guard's job is to open the gate, then walk out onto the street, which is Frank Sinatra Drive. Look both ways, see that it's clear, and wave you out. So the security guard opened the gate. He took one step, and Frank drove right by him out onto the street. And cars are, you know, <laughs> that's hysterical. He that is hysterical. A big. He, we go the first every stoplight he went to. He went halfway through the intersection. <laughs> you know, by the second stoplight, she had her rosary out. You know, by the third stoplight, I realized why I was the only one in that room when he said, "Who wants to go to the airport?" With me? <laughs> now we get to the we get yeah. finally get to the airport. Yeah. We pull up to the private jet. She gets out of the car, a little old Italian lady. She said to me, do you have to ride a back with a him? And I said, yes. And she took her thumb and made the sign of the cross on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you, you can hear more of these great stories of Sinatra when, when Tommy returns to the Chicagoland area on Friday, September 15th at Uptown Social in Michigan City and then in Lake Forest at the John and Nancy Hughes Theater. For the man who made Sinatra laugh on Sunday, September 17th, you can also pick up a copy of Tommy's memoir, still standing, his journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. And for more on Tommy... You can visit TommyDreesen.com, find out where you can get tickets and all that good stuff as well. Thank you, pal. Appreciate it. Okay, Dave. Good to talk to you. All right. We'll continue to celebrate stand-up comedy right after the top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. 
All right, it's Dave Player back with you on 720 WGN. Richard Lewis's comedy act is known even by people who've never seen his stand-up. Younger comedians who manifest an agitated, impressively confessional, complaining with punchlines character are seen to be descended from Lewis's comedy lineage. Lewis has brought a more focused, life-season version of his stage presence to HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, undoubtedly exposing him to millions of younger viewers unfamiliar with his 40 years of stand-up. Multi-season, early 90s sitcom Anything But Love, Daddy Dearest, and movie roles ranging from the heavy drama Leaving Las Vegas to the parody Robin Hood Men in Tights. He's a comedy genius, and Richard Lewis joins us tonight. Hey, Richard. Well, I just I, I take issue with almost everything you just said. I, I'm not <laughs> a legend, wow. and uh, I would say that Larry David's more of a thorn in my side than I'm in his <laughs> side. And, I bet. Uh, I bet. But, uh, but I'm uh, I am ecstatic about this season. He didn't show me a couple of episodes that are supposed to be so shocking, but it's he's as fearless as they come. One of the great storytellers since Norman Lear, as far as I'm concerned, and. And any people that are familiar or really love the the series, trust me, this is the the best. I'm I'm ecstatic to be part of it. It almost seems you're the voice of reason when it comes to Larry. Which it, don't which... tell my wife anything close to that <laughs> sentence. Okay. I have not won an argument since I got married 10 years ago. We've dated for 20 years, and she would say, you have no reason to say that. It's the exact opposite. I get along better with interviewers on radio. I, you know, I, I, you know, you, you know, if you were 6, 5, 10, and 11, and a woman in, from Denmark, you never know what could happen, but uh, very good. Stuck with a from a Jewish woman from uh, from Minnesota who doesn't know whether to go ice fishing or to Barney's. It's very confused. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, did you even realize, Richard, that at the end of the eighth season? I mean, we're talking. You know, this was back in 2011, and year after year, you're, right. is he going to bring it back? Is he not going to bring it back? Or did you always know? Because I know you've lo- known him a long time. Did you always know? Yeah, he's going to bring this back on the air. Was that that kind of a mystery? I only asked him one thing. Uh, I, we were born in the same hospital uh, ward three days apart. We were, we, met, we knew each other as teenagers, but hated each other at some sports camp and then never saw each other until we became inseparable best friends eight years later when we were comics. And then we realized we were the same guys 12 years before, and it was mm-hmm. really astonishing. But uh, I never asked him. He came over to my house in 2000, 17 years ago, which is sort of astonishing. It's sort of like, you know, the Eagles say, well, we got all the boomers and then they're married. Their (laughs) children have children. So I guess we have to sing Desperado when they were singing. You know, I mean, I, I miss Glenn tremendously, but I'm just saying. I mean, there's so many generations, 17 years, and it's been on and it's all over the world. And it's but he came over and he wanted me to be his friend, and I had no idea what the show was. He says, I said, what's it like? There's no script. Oh, that's a good sign, you know, and uh, <laughs> he says, I'll, I'll have an outline and we'll ad-lib, which sounded exciting, and I wasn't in a series then, and, you know, in those years, I was touring a lot. I did some some TV. I did a few little indie movies, but nothing that notable, but touring went well. I was, you know, doing town hall and big venues, and it was... It, did a couple of Super Bowl commercials, so it wasn't like I was begging him to come back. I was just praying that Herb <laughs> would come back because I'm yeah. such a fan. I mean, I'm not a regular. I'm I'm, I'm on, in about half of them, so that's cool. You know, I'm like I I feel I can say that I'm a fan of the show, and uh, 
And uh, but, you know, he asked me to be on it and I did make a demand. I, I did say, look, you know, I'm not going to do a cameo in the first episode. Like, you know, back in the day, people, you're too young to know. But like an Earl and Earl and the fall and the family, Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, yeah. Showed up at, sure. at, his, at his O'Connor's door and he went we freaked out. And it was like, that's a <laughs> right. cameo. And I said, right. no. Ca- oh, there's Richard Lewis getting some meds at the drugstore. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Not that Larry would ever do something as stupid as that. But yeah, at any yeah, rate, yeah. I said, give me at least three or four episodes to see if we can develop a relationship. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, then you gave me a shot. And he did that. And he's been and it, and we and the show got reviews that I've never seen before. And, and they singled us out, too, in, in our relationship. And no one can have our relationship. I'm not boasting, but to know somebody for your entire life and uh, to go through what we went through. Uh, we basically, it, it's 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 hard to describe. I mean, it's acting to some degree. I've studied acting. I know what acting is. I've studied method acting, and and but to be, to, I don't need much method acting to get in touch with who I am because it's me. When they say action, the whole thing is so convoluted. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. And it is. my wife says, and my wife says, how did it go? I go, don't ever ask me that again. <laughs> it, we remember we fought last night at the restaurant. We had this, a similar scene, and uh, I mean, I don't know what I said. He's going to edit it. I don't know what I'm going to, what's going to be in sure. there. I always tease him about that, but he always watches my back. He's, you couldn't have a better friend, and. I, and I think he truly is, the, and I've mentioned it once or twice, I apologize, but the Norman Lear of the last 30, 40 years, oh, yeah. question, between Seinfeld and mm. Curb. And you, know, it, and, you know, people didn't understand how difficult it was to write a six-page outline and, and hope that the actors come through and make it funny. Well, he did cast well. I mean, present company excluded, but I, <laughs> we have a nice relationship. But yeah. But the casting is insanely brilliant, and um, and I prayed I'd be funny. You know, what can I do? <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned, and this is crazy to me, that obviously, okay, you met in camp in like 19, 1960 or somewhere, but when did you find out yeah. you were born in the same hospital? That that happened when we had dinner. Our dinners are pretty uh, curbesque anyway. He yeah. winds up staying for a minute or two and leaves because he doesn't want to pay a parking ticket on a meter. I mean, the whole thing is insane. But forgetting that, uh, we were talking about, where, you know, he was born in Brooklyn, so was I. I said, where were you born? He said, Brooklyn Jewish Hospital. I said, so was I. It's no longer there. And, uh, and since I was born three days before him, we were in the same ward. That's crazy. It's pretty, yeah. Well, I knew it was a guy I wouldn't like. Uh, ultimately, he was he was mocking me because I was a preemie, and he was spanking me with his mother's umbilical cord. Nice. There's a little less Sam going on there. I don't want to really talk much more about it. I got it. it. Um, but because of that friendship. It was only an inch long at that point. Oh, jeez. So, you know, it didn't, really, it didn't really hurt that much. It actually felt like a massage. <laughs> but, with, but with all this chemistry and all this friendship, I mean, when you actually, you said, you know, it's a quick outlet. I wouldn't outlet. go as far as to say chemistry. We, yeah. We have a love-hate relationship. Not hate. I love him. I do. I would drop anything. I love his two daughters. They're spectacular. And, uh. And I admire him, and uh, you know, and I'm glad that it worked out. I mean, stand up wasn't his thing; he just couldn't handle having people talk or order a drink when he was on. Go figure that yeah, out. That, yeah, that sounds but, right. But you know, I'm glad that that Seinfeld was getting hot at the time, and everybody knew Larry had a great brain, and they hooked up. And the and you know, and, that, and you, what else can you say? Every channel 
in North Korea has Seinfeld on now. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a, it was one of the greatest successes. <laughs> it's not the greatest in history. Yeah. So, you know, but to follow it up with a, with a, with like a Seinfeld unplugged, I think is astonishing. And, uh, you know, uh, they're both great shows, you know, and, uh, um, you know, um, uh, but he, he, I, I've made a career out of unraveling myself on stage and I've yeah. left a lot of a lot of Lewis dust on zany stages for almost <laughs> thirty seven years. I think I started there about three years after Rick Ewart, who passed, uh, opened the club, wow. and, and I must have done thousands of shows there. And uh, they treat me like family. And um, well, Zany's rolled out the red carpet for you when you last performed here, and it was exciting. It was exciting to see you perform at Zany's on stage again. More with comedian Richard Lewis right after this on seven twenty WGN. We're celebrating stand-up comedy, and right now we're talking to comedy legend Richard Lewis. You've been doing stand-up since the early 70s. 71, 71. yeah. And, you know, just like every other, you know, uh, up-and-coming comedian, actor, I mean, you were working, I think, at an ad agency by day, and then you were doing stand-up by night. What Was stand-up always something you oh, wanted to God. do? <laughs> well, my, my dad died before I went on stage, and mm. uh, my sister and brother were much older, so they were out of the house. I didn't really get along well, sadly, with my mother, so I was sort of tethered to nothing, to be honest, without making a joke out of it. And uh, so um, I, I always was funny, and I had a lot of part-time jobs, and I lived, I was pretty broke. Um, I mean, my mother was was fine. My father made sure she was, you know, she lived decently, but I had no money. She every now and then would, you know, give her children some bread. But but the truth is I had no money for years. But when I would drive in, I would work during the day and have these night jobs. And then I would I would say at least 340 days a year I would drive in to the to Manhattan because at that point I I moved to New Jersey with my college girlfriend which poor thing I'm sorry <laughs> I had to go put her through that uh and that didn't last but um it took me two and a half years and I did have my first tonight show which is pretty fast and uh yeah. And then I never, I never looked back after that. That's a long time ago. My God. Because obviously, any comedian who does Johnny obviously remembers exactly every moment from front to back. And you were kind of sweating it at the end because you're, you felt like your set went a little long and you would never be asked back. And... Well, there was a couple of, I have a trillion cars and stories, but the first one didn't go well because I went on it. Then he did 90 minutes. Yeah. And I was waiting behind that frightening Berlin Wall curtain. <laughs> right, is yeah. that how it felt? Yeah. And uh, George Papard from the A-Team with Mr. T in that show back in the 70s. Was, he was dying of lung cancer, to be frank, and he was talking about it to the audience, and everybody was weeping. Oh, boy. And then they, and Johnny said, well, we wish you nothing but the best, George. Now for his first network appearance. Oh, man. Oh, man. Wow. So uh, let's put it this way. People felt guilty laughing. I mean, it was a nightmarish studio audience. And uh, so uh, I, I, I went into Carson. You know, it really wasn't my fault. But Johnny still put me in Johnny prison for four months. And then he uh, always had me booked. I mean, I've That's really cool. devoted my, my, my life. I mean, I've done some acting that, I've, that I'm proud of, some dramatic stuff on occasion. But basically, stand-up is at the heart of my life. And um, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, Letterman. And, uh, I think I Letterman really, is where I discovered you. I discovered you on Letterman in the well, early 80s. And Letterman, then, well, 82, because he, he invited me over to his office, and um, 
he asked me to actually write for the show and move back to New York, which was I did. I just it was all I could do to get to uh, to find a dump I could afford in L.A. And uh, I mean, I moved to L.A. to follow Carson. And, um, you know, it's funny. You do the Tonight Show. You're living in a dump. You have no money. You get four hundred and eighty dollars. The manager asks for 15 percent. The agent wants 10. The government takes 35 percent. And you do the Tonight Show and you make a dollar eighty, and you think <laughs> oh, you know. So it's a long haul. Yeah. And uh, but but Letterman Letterman knew that I was a very physical comic on, st- and it's not really that great for the camera. So I did. I you know I had some great shots and I had some less great shots, and he thought it was because I was too physical and not the material. To be frank, I had good stuff, but so he says you can come on my show as often as you want. And never, ever do stand-up. You can just sit and squirm on my couch. Okay. And I did about 70 or 80 of them. And, wow. and then I was lucky enough to uh, get a series with Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, yeah. this and that and then Larry. So I've been I've been a lucky guy. I've been a lucky... I mean, I was I was ready for my breaks, but you still... Uh, Sidney Lumet said in his documentary, which I recommend, he says... Of all the words he's heard from the thousands of actors he had worked with, uh, he says luck is the number one word because you know, sure. you know, you know. If I wasn't, if I wasn't, you know, I had, if I didn't have a fist fight with Larry David at the Brooklyn Jewish Hospital, I might not be talking to you right, yeah, right now. Exactly, exactly. And you did a show with Rickles too, man. You did, you did that. Yeah, I know. I, I, I created that show with a friend, and there was some uh, hanky-panky that I don't even feel like going into. But basically, I, I, I pitched the show with my friend. We sold it. But it, Don, Don really is was such a powerhouse, and he really didn't like memorizing lines. He, he was just so astonishingly funny and um, the show was very difficult for him and then you know I'm you know and and quiet, quietly and quickly I became to fall in, back into the shadows as a comedian I became more of a straight man which wasn't fun right right for me and and also you know Don didn't like doing the show either so uh, it got canceled and uh, it was the best for you know you know it was it was best for both of us and uh he was very fond. He was very shows. fond of you, though. I mean, when I interviewed him, back, I've interviewed him oh, backstage in Vegas. He loved you. Oh God, I loved him. He was. I mean, to hang out with him for six months, it was like hanging out with the Rat Pack. He was. He treated me like a son, you know, a son who we had lost while he was alive, which was horrible. And uh, right. but he was. I. I. I love. I cherish every moment. I, I. I was just talking about the show. It was was all messed up, you know, but. Uh, but working with Don was just uh, just too good to be true. I, I've been very fortunate working with mostly really great people, and I, I did a movie once years ago called Drunks, where yeah. if you uh, with about eight of the greatest actors in the history of the world, and somehow I got the lead. And but see, that's when I was doing dramatic some dramatic stuff, and I have some range. I wasn't going to be Daniel Day Lewis and Abe Lincoln. It wouldn't have been Richard Lewis. That would have been a mistake for Spielberg. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Four score and uh, ha- ha- what is that? Twelve days? <laughs> you know, I would have sucked. Yeah. But I mean, I have some range. I'm not doing Macbeth. You know, I'll do uh, Uncle Macbeth, a Jewish guy who lives <laughs> next door to a deli. No, but I do have range. But so Larry yeah. knew that. He says, you know, if you play Richard Lewis on my show, you might as well kiss goodbye by dramatic roles and basically other than some tv stuff it's true i mean i'm you know what 
you can't have everything, you know, uh, you know, it's, I'm so lucky. I mean, 5% of the people in the, in the, in the arts and it's not just comedians, but writers and dancers that they can't, they can't even afford to to pay their rent or, you know, so, you know, you really got to, I tell young, I guess it's just sloppy when you get older, you just feel like, if you really like or feel someone's talented, you and, and it seems to me that the millennials are a little over anxious to succeed. Not that they don't, not not that everyone. No, I you're mean, totally you make right. A blanket statement. No, you're totally right. But that I, you know, I did thousands of shows, you know, and until I got my breaks, and um, and I studied, and so when I did that audition, and then Jamie Lee gave me a note. You're my guy. I no, mean, cool. there was a reason. I because I was ready, and when Letterman wanted me to go to New York, there was a reason. And when Larry wanted me to be his buddy, he thought I could deliver. So I'm I'm lucky that I had whatever gift that is. I don't know. It's hard for me to describe. I I don't take myself too seriously, but I'm just I'm just you know at the center of my life is being sober 23 years and having a good marriage and still working and talking to. And I'll just say this, you know, Second City Aside, which is a big aside. I mean, I know hundreds of people practically who came from Second City, uh, first in Chicago and then Toronto and uh, now elsewhere. But Chicago is the place. And but I, you know, I always you always hear that, you know, that cliche, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And there's some degree of truth to that. But for comedy and I'm a real historian, Lenny. And uh, and Hef, Hef, who just died, who yeah. was uh, such a proponent of uh, and and such a such a First Amendment guy, and with Mort Saul and Shelley Berman and Nichols, everybody, Phyllis Diller and Jonathan Winters, everybody had to go through Chicago because it was a bit different scoring in Chicago than scoring in San Francisco or sure. New York, and the, on, the coasts are different. And I love Chicago, and you get in there, and they're very demanding audiences. That's you know, awesome. you, you'll, you'll even you'll, you'll even have people say, uh, you want to rewrite that and do it again tomorrow night? I mean, they really <laughs> know what they're thinking. That's awesome. You know, I, that's you awesome. Know, if you can make it in Chicago, that's that to me. Chicago has been and will always be the most important. And I'm not just saying this because I'm on the phone with you, but it, it has singularly been the most important city in my career. And, and oh, will be to hear. when I hang it up. Thanks, yeah, Richard. Appreciate it, pal. Okay, buddy. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back. All right. With more than 20 years as a stand-up comedian, Tom Papa is one of the top comedic voices in the country, finding success in film, TV, radio, and podcasts, as well as on the live stage. He has his Breaking Bread podcast, and with his most recent stand-up special is What a Day, streaming on Netflix. And in his latest book, We're All in This Together, Tom's 37 short essays tackle these universal American topics like love your first car, the truth about personal hygiene, date nights, unfamiliar hotel rooms, pets, drinking, ducking your family. That all kind of goes together. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does. And talk about it all as comedian Tom Papa. Tom, thanks for being here in studio, man. Thanks for having me. You know, um, I just saw you at the Vic Theater um, when you were here earlier this year, and I must say your observations are clearly what everyone is thinking but never says out loud <laughs> that's good you know if they were to start saying it out loud i'd be out of work <laughs> <laughs> that'd be true that'd be true that'd be true um you know in a world of political correctness truth telling can be complicated but only if you give a crap about it yeah that's true or mm-hmm. if you work for somebody that's true too if you work for somebody yeah. you could uh lose a gig that's true but yeah, yeah. but if you're uh if you're in the comedy world, if you're just having a conversation with your audience, uh, 
it's pure. Everyone knows the source. Yeah. Everyone knows the difference between a joke and something that's sure. not. And uh, it seems to be an infestation of a lot of people outside of comedy writing about comedy. Yeah. And that uh, that doesn't bode well. Is it? Does it change like just because of all the political correctness that there is out there? Has it changed what you do? Because I'm not in contract with somebody, you know, like true. I don't have a show on like some network or something. Right, right. Um, but it does, it is in the back of your mind. You do, it's, it's a, it's ever present because yeah. you know so many people that, uh, that run into trouble. Well, I heard you say that in seventh grade, uh, you were a fan of Steve Martin and mm-hmm. George Carlin and their comedy albums. And that's when you realized being funny could actually be a job. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was funny from the, beginning like i was making people laugh in awesome. kindergarten yeah, yeah like i was just, it's a good I, feeling I, yeah i was like hear doing, that laughter yeah i just didn't even <laughs> kindergarten i didn't know it was anything <laughs> i remember dancing around with a banana in kindergarten <laughs> and getting some laughs okay all right okay. and uh but it wasn't until seventh grade that summer when i realized oh this is actually a career like yeah. there's people that continue doing this yeah and as grown-ups yeah and from that point on i i knew you know uh and I remember listening to those, you know, my dad's comedy albums because they were my dad's or certainly yeah. were mine. But the George Carlin's, the Bill Cosby's really at the time. Yeah. Um, the Smothers Brothers. Great. Which I remember talking to Dick and I said, you know, I had volume two. I, I cannot find volume one. He's like, dude, that's the joke. There's no volume one. You know, I've been looking for it for 10 years. I can't find it. Amazing. Um, your third book just came out. So it's yeah. true that we all learn from one another. But I feel this book is teaching you about really just being a human being yeah a hundred percent yeah it's uh you know it, it started with why are we all at each other's throats or why is that the perception in the country and i wasn't seeing that when i was going around touring i would just see people trying to get along and we are yeah. all in this together but then it did become a little bit more of a a, a guidebook for just being a human yeah i mean we, yeah. we always think we're the first one going through all of these troubles and or the, <laughs> always and you're not you no. know and you can learn from the smart people that came before us and the dumb ones yeah almost you makes know? you feel like you're not alone yeah in any no, of this journey, no right? exactly yeah. Yeah. That, that that's that's really what I, I want the takeaway from the whole book to be or from even from my stand-up is that you're not alone yeah you're not yeah you're, it's, walk through cvs and look <laughs> at all the stuff just waiting to help people. And you, you run in there and you're like, oh my God, I've never had this rash on my elbow. Uh, millions of people have. Yes. And in aisle two, there's something that will help you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, which leads me to, like, I was looking through the book, of course, and Some Things Can Kill Us really caught my attention. It was a favorite for me. And mm-hmm. you write, despite all the advancements we've made in medicine, safety helmets and bubble wrap, there are still... A lot of things out there that can still get you. <laughs> yeah. You <know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 As, as, uh, as, as safe as we kind of feel and you, you build up these, yeah. these <laughs> worlds, there's a lot of stuff out there. Manholes. <laughs> I know you're right. Pirates, gluten, yeah. lawn darts. All, all, you mean, you're right. <laughs> yeah. All Any, in its own category. I, but, yeah. I was telling that to my daughter. I said she, she, she had never heard of uh, nuclear war before. And she was all freaked out. And I was like, thanks for that, TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it's okay. I said, I said, don't, yeah, that could happen, but you could die so many ways. Yeah. I know this was probably bad parenting, but I said, Hold your daughter? I, 17. Okay. And I said, uh, I said, any way you can think of dying, I bet there's a YouTube video showing it happening. <laughs> Everything. Absolutely. Uh, a manatee attack. I'm sure someone 
has been an embarrassing it's death true. <laughs> it's true. by a manatee. Well, it's funny when my kids come to me and say the same thing. They'll be like, can you believe that? Yeah, no, that happened 20 years ago and 30 years ago. And when yeah. I was a kid too, you're just not new. But okay, you go through your thing. No. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It's 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 it, it always feels like the end of times, but it it's not really. It's just the potential end of your time. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. I'm talking to comedian Tom Papa, his new book is We're All In This Together. And there's more with Tom next here on 720 WGN. Comedian Tom Papa is in studio. His new book is We're All In This Together. Life's observations is what drives each chapter here. And there's one that actually came up more recently for me, but sleeping together. Oh, yeah. yeah. You sleep with another human? Um, well, occasionally. I'm the it's goal- complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. It is, especially the older you get. Yeah. I mean, I'm on the road by myself. And the odds of me getting a good night's sleep are 50-50 yeah. that I'll get a good night's sleep by myself. So now you put yeah. another person the same age yeah. in your bed with you. Yeah. The chances of you both getting a good night's <laughs> sleep on the same night? Yeah. Oh, forget it. Well, it's like, you know, I know this cuddling is great, but I also need to sleep. So we, <laughs> it's okay that there could be some separation. Yeah, and it goes both <laughs> yeah. ways. I, I literally, I, I had this moment with the cuddling. I was like, you know, we don't cuddle enough like right before we go to sleep. And I came over and spooned my wife and I could just feel her body going please get off (laughs) i love you but you're hot and you're big and i just want to sleep (laughs) i have to get up tomorrow well heat's a factor too Oh Clearly. my God. He, you Even know, my kids I, are sleeping next to me. I'm like, oh my God. Like, yeah. open the windows, turn on the I fan. Know. And yeah. then in the middle of the night, we have this very stealth black lab who tries to sneak into the bed who weighs like 75 pounds. Oh, nice. And then you wake up and that thing's on top yeah. of you also. Yeah. Forget it. And my wife took a little. Um, uh, she had a little problem with in my last special I talked all about her sleeping problems oh. her mouth guard and <laughs> oh, all geez. that stuff and uh, she really did not like that I didn't talk about my failings but no. I've yet to see them yeah <laughs> awesome awesome uh, ducking your family even though you love them and this chapter is called the lesson of Mark Twain's cigars you know talk a little bit about yeah that. I went to uh, in uh, Elmira New York you can go to on the campus of that university you can go see uh mark twain's little writing cabin it's like this little oxygen there's a name for these buildings it's kind of like a a closed-in gazebo okay and that's where he wrote and his family built that his sister-in-law actually had it built and put on the property for him and in the museum they said that he smoked 32 cigars a day and i was like wait a minute that's impossible (laughs) what do you mean there's no way he would have been dead before huck finn was even started yeah and i realized oh this is how brilliant he is he wasn't smoking them but i guarantee you he was lighting them yeah and he was because as a writer you have to be alone yeah and he was filled with all these people so if you light your cigars and you get to be alone you're clearing a room (laughs) i was like man i thought he was a genius for all those books yeah but it's really this is a a stroke of genius um speaking of ducking your family i I heard you talking about in-laws coming to visit and they stayed for like two weeks like that's just yeah too long I, no that's that's not, yeah that's not a visit that's an insurrection. <laughs> <laughs> that's an insurrection yeah yeah how long is too long when you do those yeah things? my parents are literally on my way to my house right now oh, are they and yeah and my mother says that he picks the date my father picks the date and then goes before and after it until he finds flights that are cheap enough and then he buys the ticket so it's not about you <laughs> you know it's about, and they don't even ask he just shows up 
Uh, and it's hard because like they, they say we don't want you don't have to entertain us. We yeah. just want to be around. We yeah. just want to be with you. Uh, <laughs> not true. I sneak into the kitchen at like four in the morning, get one cup of coffee by myself. They're sitting at the counter. Oh my god! They've been there <laughs> all night waiting for like, you. Yeah, like two lonely sea lions <laughs> just waiting for me. Oh, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, you know, and your kids are kind of ducking you two, aren't they? Going to college? Yeah, my yeah. one's already. Yeah, junior and one's on her way out. So, house, dog, car was all for them. All for them. I was saying that to my daughter. I said, "Wait a minute! I didn't want to live in this house. I didn't want to live in this town. I didn't want these. And I don't even have my own friends. All my friends are your friends' parents. Yeah. And yes, now you're gonna hello. go? Yeah. I should go. What kind of deal is this? I know. Yeah. Give I know. me a backpack with a Van Halen CD and some weed, and I'll go back to That's living it. the life I was living yeah, before hello. I met you. Hello. Yeah, what happens after that? Because I've got one that just graduated college, one going back into college, or uh-huh. going to college, and I still have a 10-year-old. But okay. at one point, you get your life back, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, I've heard that that math, Yeah, and it sounds kind of appealing. Like, they go, and then you have this 10-year-old around, so you, now you have a little more perspective. Now, if my wife is not equally as happy with this scenario, it won't be great. No. But no. for me right now, I think this might... Be okay, and that's kind of what the book is about. Yeah, I'm talking about it like it's me, like mm-hmm. I'm the only one going through. Yeah, it. yes. Just follow the rules. That's Look, right. Everyone else has done it before you. Yeah. Ask people, see what they're done, see what, see how they got through it. They, it's all been done, and it's all in the schedule. Yeah. So, well, speaking of your wife, she gets a chapter in this book too called "Will You Go Out with Me?" Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh that essay kind of just fell out of me. It was. I had a, I was watching my nephew like on social media trying to find a girl, just trying to find somebody. I thought, this is wrong. We should <laughs> yeah. really hold on, again, to the rules. The way that people dated and the time they took, yeah. uh, that you met someone and then you didn't get to kiss at first and right. then you got to see them again yeah. and then you got to hold hands yeah. and then you got to be involved with them and then you got to meet their family. Yeah. And all of these... All of these things that we that some people see as archaic or or old fashioned builds anticipation. They work. Just, yeah, they work. They yeah, work, and yeah. they they build respect and they build love and romance and all of it. And I say, you know, this is going to be your love story. That's one thing people don't realize. Like once you get married, and people you're going to tell this story of yeah. how you met to your children and your grandchildren, and so make it a good one. Yeah, don't make it. Oh, I found her on an app. <laughs> or on any social media that you you find out everything about that person in five minutes. So where's, yeah. where's the excitement and, and your own exploration of this individual? Right, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's a cool way to open the door and like meet someone like so I don't have to go into a yeah. bar. I get to see this person. Yeah. But once you make that contact, slow it down and just go through the paces and let it let it just build. Yeah. Like I said, these people have been here before us That's true. and it's worked for them. Well, I love that chapter. Thank you. It was great. Thank it was you. great. Um, before I let you go, I want to talk to you. You know, you've done Letterman, Leno, Colbert, Conan, like those late night talk shows for comedians, e- even the ones that preceded it, they could make or break a comedian's career. I mean, th- th- those shows are still important out there, aren't they? They're impactful. Like I, and I'm running around doing press for this book yeah. and it was, I was going to be on Colbert sure. and that would have been great because he's got a gr- really cool audience and, and all of that. Uh, and I, it's exciting just doing it. Yeah. But if the people don't put you on those shows, yeah. young comics, they don't need them. They can 
make their own videos in the club. Yeah. Have okay. Your friend film it. Yeah. Put it up on YouTube. Put yeah. it on TikTok. Put yeah. it all these places. And I know a lot of people, a couple guys who are opening for me, who are selling out theaters now. Wow. Because they they have funny stuff and the audience responded. And so there's no gatekeeper any longer, which is kind of great. So Carson was the social media of the time. It was. Really? Yeah. yeah. We yeah. all were I mean, yeah. millions and millions every night. And you're doing radio, uh, you know, an author, TV host, actor isn't enough, but you got the new podcast, Breaking Bread, right? Breaking Bread yeah. podcast. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm a big sourdough bread baker. And I've been doing it for years, well before the pandemic, by the way. Okay. All these Johnny come lately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I really got into it. It was a really fun hobby. And I just love cooking for people and baking. And, and I realized it's a great conversation starter. When I ask you, like, what was your favorite meal when you were 10? Yeah. Oh, I, I made this. I, I love mac and cheese. Yeah. And my grandmother would make it. And it just opens up the conversation. Yeah. Uh, I wanted it to be more of a podcast. So we've had all these great people, like all these great comedians and food people, and it's really a lot of fun to do. I pictured it that we would sit and actually break bread and I would feed you your favorite thing. Yeah. But people get so angry when you're chewing on Mike. Oh, that's true. Well, that's true. A little <laughs> they distracting. Get so, they yeah. get so yeah. angry. Yeah. So we have to hold off on the food part. It's true. Somebody <laughs> told me a long time ago when I first started this, you know, it's radio. Don't eat on the air. Nobody wants to hear that. I disagree. I feel <laughs> really? like I feel like some people don't. It doesn't bother them. We yeah. all hear people. But mm, this is good. But <laughs> the the people that it bothers, it's yeah. like an ASMR thing. Okay. It, it really bothers them. Okay. So you can't do it. <laughs> Me and Tom Papa's new book is "We're All in This Together." Uh, damn funny book as always, and I appreciate you being in studio. Thanks so much. This is great. What a great gig you have here and a cool view. Oh my god, this for radio, is amazing. Yeah. yeah, this is a this is a part of Chicago I've never seen. Hello, before. <laughs> hello, one two. Yeah, you said you were here mostly in the winter, so seeing summer here is oh, is a cool thing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, news is next here on seven twenty WGN. Legendary comedian Gary Shandling passed away in 2016, and while stand-up was always in his blood, he reached the heights of official guest host on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson and starred on two of the most innovative television comedies in history. It's The Gary Shandling Show and The Larry Sanders Show. Joining us to talk about the legacy of Gary Shandling is his friend Judd Apatow. Judd, welcome in, my friend. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, you know, i got to tell you, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, and a longtime fan of of Gary uh, since the very first appearance on the Tonight Show in in 1981. I was one of those kids that couldn't wait till he guest hosted. Like when I heard guest host Gary Shandling, I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, he's legendary. Uh, yeah, I mean, he really is one of the great comic minds of all time because he was uh, a brilliant stand-up and also, you know, one of the real innovators of television comedy. He changed. Uh, you know, sitcoms uh, two times, once with its Gary Shandling show and then with the Larry Sanders show. And you first met Gary, which I, I didn't know this. You met him at when you were 16 years old at your high school radio station. You, you, you got him for an interview. Yeah, I was obsessed with comedy when I was a kid, and, and I created a radio show just so I could meet people. And, uh, and <laughs> I, awesome. I interviewed Gary over the phone. He was in Las Vegas. He had just hosted The Tonight Show for the first time. This was in 1983. Okay. And that was a giant deal. They very rarely let a young person host the show. They let David Letterman do it, and Jay Leno got to do it. And so it's funny because in the documentary, when we're talking about that time, uh, the interview is with me as a child. That's very cool. Oh, I love how that all, I love how that all started. And you tell the story 
um, you know, first of all, he, you know, Gary wrote in, in, in his diaries was so telling about how he was always forging forward with his goals. And I just found it fascinating that really, I mean, every goal he pretty much made for himself, he accomplished in, in, in pretty short term. There was some great insight uh, into him, but he was very methodical about his life and how he wanted it to flow. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he came from an engineering background. Uh, yeah. That's what he studied in college, and then at some point, you know, he he got bored and started uh, thinking about doing something more creative, and he took some creative writing classes. I think he, he looked at a lot of his career as an engineer with the work ethic of an engineer. And then I think from an early age, he had an interest in Eastern religions and Buddhism. He had a he had a uh, a, a foreign exchange student live with his family for for a year from Japan, and I, I think that's when he learned about Buddhism uh, as a kid. Yeah, very spiritual um, uh, all throughout his life. Um, and one of those things that you know, in telling the story about Gary Judd, is that you know it was very honest. Um, no real filters, um, which kind of reflected who who Gary was, and you did it in such a way that I think anyone in the spotlight would be very very happy the way the story was told. You know, I think Gary would be very happy with it. Well, he was always on a search for truth. That's what his work was about. That's what his spirituality was about. So I just thought, you know, he would want a warts and all treatment of his life. He would want us to look at his life as a as a lesson. Because as he got older, uh, more of his focus was on seeing the ridiculousness of uh, uh, living uh, by the demands of your ego. So he he was trying to figure out how to be a mentor, how to give more to other people, how to connect more with other people. And even though it's not that he got all the way there, he didn't. But it was his goal, and it's what was the focus of his journals. That's what he was writing about for decades. How can I let go of all of my attachments? How can I just be present and and be a loving person? Well, you tell such a great story about his family life and so forth. But, I mean, really poignant and and something, again, I I learned from the story is, you know, Gary had a a brother, and his brother uh, was ill, and he passed he passed away at a very young age. I think Gary may have been 10 years old. And, and you know, they really, like a lot of families back then, didn't talk about those type of things. Some of those conversations were swept under the rug, and he never really, really had any closure or any real deep conversations about what happened as a young kid and with his family. I think, uh, you know, a lot of families were like that back then. It was yeah. 1960 when his brother died of cystic fibrosis. And how the family handled it is uh, they didn't really talk about it very much. Uh, you know, one cousin said that he was over the house an enormous amount of time, uh, and he never heard his brother's name mentioned again. And that's a lot for a little kid to yeah. carry. He didn't really have a way to work out his grief. Uh, some of that led to his mom uh, doting over him and engulfing him because he was a surviving child, which led him to maybe be, being a little more isolated. He got into ham radio, so he would yeah. he would yeah. he'd sit and talk to people from around the world on his ham radio. And, and he said that from an early age, I taught him uh, about how everyone is connected all, yeah. you know, all around the world. And he was fascinated 
by that. And he also developed an interest in, in comedy, and that became his escape pod. Well, and you talk about the connectivity that he felt on the ham radio, but he also learned that everyone's got their stuff. You know, everyone's got their issues, too. And he connected in that way as well. Yeah, I think that, you know, he, he became uh, sensitive and empathetic to everybody's problems. Everybody has uh, their struggle. In fact, there was a, a, a something written in one of his journals uh, in the years before he died where he said, you know, your job is, uh, you know, to help people through this, you know, difficult life. That's your, your gift. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, you met him when you were 16, but then years later, you know, you, I mean, you developed a long time, you know, really wonderful personal friendship uh, with Gary, but you also worked for him professionally. You know, as you mentioned, you know, he was hosting the Grammys and, and you wrote, uh, you wrote a uh, hundred jokes uh, for him where he scribbled out and changed a bunch of the, of, of the punchlines <laughs> and everything. But you wrote, you know, I think from the second season of the Larry Sanders show, I mean, your name was all over that show as a writer and producer. Um, but you really got to know him, uh, you know, personally behind the scenes. Uh, I did. I met him when I was in my early twenties and at the time he was, uh, dating this woman named Linda Doucette yeah. who, who was later one of the stars of the Larry Sanders show. And I always felt like I was like a starter child for the, for them. <laughs> like I was a, an experiment in, in parenting to see how they liked it. Yeah. Judd's coming for really, dinner. He's coming for dinner. That's right. They were really, really nice to me in ways I, I truly didn't understand at the time. Uh, they had a lot of affection for me and I, I was always so blown away that I was allowed into their world at all. I even went on to buy Gary Shandling's house when he moved out. Oh, really? And, and, I, and, I, and I just lived there. So I was definitely living a Gary Shandling life uh, in, his, uh, oh, in his footsteps. Was that the house at, he at never finished? Time. Was that the house he never finished or was that the new house then? It, it was the house before that. You know, He built a house. Yeah. And... The joke was that he, you know, designed it with architects and then hated the results and lived there and complained <laughs> for the next 20 years. He would just take you on a tour of why none of the rooms work. Hey, Player 720 WGN. We're talking to Judd Apatow on the legacy of Gary Shandling. So Gary had a trunk that he pretty much left to you that had his life story in there. Yeah, he... He um, he saved everything, but he just chucked them in boxes and threw them in closets and storage spaces. So it's funny because he wasn't a very nostalgic person. There was never a photo of his brother in his house. Yeah. There was, you know, he he wasn't one to have a lot of, uh, of props and things from his different projects laying around. All of his awards were in this tiny trophy case that was next to the washer and dryer in his laundry room. Uh, <laughs> but he did save everything. It, yeah. it was yeah. all there. And he was considering putting out a book based on his journals and doing some sort of documentary based on his journals. So I took that as a sort of permission that he felt like there were lessons to be learned in his writings. And great clips, too. I mean, great clips all the way along his career. I actually think, if, forgive me if I'm wrong, but did I see Vic Tabak introducing him at a, at, a, at, a, at a variety show of some sort? Yes, Vic Tabak <laughs> introduced him 
on a show called Norm Crosby's Comedy Oh, yeah, Stop, oh, I remember that, yeah. Which, yeah. which oddly was one of the first shows that showed comedians from this new comedy club scene. There's, there's also some interesting interviews. In one interview, he's being interviewed by Alan King, yeah, uh, who had a had a comedy interview show. We found so many, so many great moments. I, I took a year just looking for. I'm for sure. The, I just looked for everything that he had ever done, and there's all sorts of of great things like old make me laugh episodes. Yeah, I saw like that. that. I saw that as well. And as I'm looking through and, and watching this documentary, you know, obviously two groundbreaking shows on television. He was behind as well, besides being a successful stand-up and, and really his dream of being on The Tonight Show and hosting The Tonight Show. Larry Sanders took him to a whole new level. I mean, I thought he was cool before. This was this was a super cool show, one of the best written shows, which I know you are a big part of, but that, you know, that I think plays a big role in in how his comedy developed, how he developed as an actor. I mean, this show was phenomenal and he kind of enjoyed playing that role. Like he, I know I know he was offered or or they talked about him replacing Letterman when he went to went to, when he went to CBS and 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 you talked about, you know, he never wanted to figure out or how to top himself every single night, but this show kind of gave him that opportunity to kind of be that talk show host, invite great friends and amazing guests on that show and tell the story of what the egos in Hollywood were really like. Yeah, he get he kept getting offered all of the 12:30 slots. And he was very much in contention for Johnny Carson's slot until he took himself out of contention because he was just too tired from doing his Gary Shandling show to also host The Tonight Show a a number of weeks a year. But he, you know, he said he was more interested in the people who make those shows and exploring their lives than he was in interviewing people and asking them what they were up to. He also was very daunted by the idea of taking a job that was very difficult and time-consuming that had no end date. The idea that if you took one of these talk shows, in a way you were committing to that being your creative life uh, almost to the end of your life. That that troubled him because I think he just thought, I don't have the energy to do that. And I think he had an instinct that in order to do it, you would have to be insanely creative, you know, to follow in Letterman's footsteps, someone who had innovated those shows and was so hilarious. You'd have to take it to the next level. And I, I, I think that he didn't have enough energy or interest in doing that or, or belief that he could do it. And then Conan came in and he did exactly that. Yeah, he, he did. He, 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 was, he was so creative and imaginative, uh, you know, that, that he, he elevated it once more. I would have been surprised before I watched the documentary that, you know, even with all that success around Larry Sanders, that he still was searching for happiness and and really perfection in the show when it was really already that good that he kind of still struggled with that, you know, all of his life. Well, you know, the work is always so hard. It doesn't make much sense uh, the way uh, that production was set up. It, It was difficult because the writers uh, kept changing. You never knew which celebrities would guest star on the show, which meant that it was hard to lock scripts because you just didn't know who would accept the offers mm-hmm. to appear. Uh, you know, you, you, you'd ask somebody, you know, uh, to do it, and then you'd get someone else. And then you'd have to rewrite the whole script because they were a different person. Yeah. And, and, and they were shooting 17 pages a day 
which was too wow. many pages. You're supposed to shoot like five or six a day. And, and at the same time, guys expected to rewrite next week's script. And it was just, it was just too much. Uh, no one has ever had to work as hard as yeah. Harry did on a show. I bet. And I have to ask you, did, did pulling this all to, uh, together, Judd, help you in your own grief with the loss of such a great friend? Well, we'll see. I mean, it's allowed me to spend another two years with Gary, uh, two very yeah. intimate years, and a lot of time in his head. You know, when you're reading so much journals, you're really along for the ride uh, uh, during their life. Yeah, uh, it's 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 very intense. So it'll be interesting to see what what my grieving is like now that it's over. But. You know, we're putting a book together so I can delay oh, my cool. grieving another year. I'm <laughs> oh, going to keep delaying gr- grief right, as well, long as possible. <laughs> well, well, I look forward to the book as well. Judd, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, it's Dave Player on 720 WGN. So George Carlin was truly one of the greatest comedians of all time. He was the comic we knew could be edgy. And when he appeared on TV in the early days of his career on shows like The Jackie Gleason Show, Hollywood Palace, and Ed Sullivan... He was able to dial it back a bit and still make it laugh out loud funny. There was his 1972 album Class Clown with seven dirty words you could never say on television. And in 77, he found a place where he could say all those words, but it wasn't TV. It was HBO. And to talk about it all is George Carlin's daughter, Kelly Carlin. You know, Kelly, your dad started on radio, but when he began stand-up, he could be free to do whatever he wanted on his albums, but he really needed to keep his comedy relatively safe in those early days on television. Oh, yeah. Uh, They were very censored and very controlled on television. Um, But you, in all of those routines, you can see his subversive perspective coming through. He was, you know, he was really a social commentator even back then. You know, a lot of the stuff he did was about the media, was about television, different types of television shows. Obviously, the hippy-dippy weatherman is, you know, once again, it's your TV weatherman. He's a guy who's stoned on weed, um, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, there was there was kind of two audiences even at that time. There was the parents of the people my dad was hanging out with, and then it was, you know, the subversive stuff for for the, you know, the, the, the burgeoning hippies and freaks of the time. So what changed it for him? Was it the, you know, he did, he did an album in the 60s, but was it the FM and AM album that he did that he won a Grammy for? Was that where he really felt like, I can kind of switch over here and not do what I've done for the past decade and just be myself? It was a very personal change for him. I mean, he, he writes about this in his posthumous memoir, uh, Last Words. Um, you know, he he dropped acid, and it changed his mind. And, and it, it, you know, not that he was already this person on the inside. He right. was just pretending to be this other person on the outside. And he he kind of had his own awakening and said, you know what, I can't I can't go through my life. This disconnected from who I truly am. I really want to just be myself on stage and. And, you know, things happened. He got fired in Vegas for saying one of the seven dirty words and, you know, stuff like that. And so, you know, there was kind of writing on the wall that he was pushing anyway towards that. He was forcing his own hand. And then he just he made the leap. And uh, and 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 thankfully, because he ended up being able to evolve as an artist. And of course, he was extremely successful right away, like you said, with FMAM and Class Clown and Occupation Fool. Those first three albums in the early 70s, you know, all went gold. You know, I mean, he, he was a huge, he, he became a true, true phenom at that point. He did, but the, the best places for him to perform really were 
um, on stage, obviously, but, you know, he couldn't really do what he was doing on television until HBO came around. And even though HBO was around in the early 70s, it hit more of a national audience in the late 70s. Your dad had a decades-long relationship with them. How did that connection begin? Because I thought that's where he was really thrown out there. Yeah, I, I don't know how the initial, I was, you know, 10 years old at the time or something, or 15 yeah, or yeah. something like that. But um, but I know that it, it was... Um, it was a miracle. I mean, because he could be on television Mm -hmm. and do his work. And the funniest thing is when you watch the very first one at the beginning, we still have it preserved in, in the recording of it is a woman comes on and she does say to the audience, you know, we're just going to let you know that there's going to be a lot of bad language in the next (laughs) hour. And so prepare yourself. You might want to hide the children or something (laughs) like that. And it's hysterical because it's like completely legal what they're doing. Um, But even then, then they were so uncomfortable and and didn't want to you know ostracize an audience member, um, but yeah, it was his. It was it really, you know, it was a unique relationship he had, and it did. It served him in great ways artistically because he then knew he always had this place to take his material, and so every eighteen to twenty four months he would do another sixty minutes and it, it it for an artist it was a great place to know that you had a place to land well and as a fan uh, every time I saw a promo for a new George Carlin uh, special coming up I mean I couldn't wait and, and and Carlin campus I think was the one that really did it for me because I, I tell you recently I bought it on iTunes so I had it digitally and I and I had my son and his buddies in the car on a road trip earlier this year and we played it and you know you never know you know how timeless comedy can be some carries very well some does not. If you would hear the laughter um, in the car but with a whole new generation, I think that was nothing short of spectacular. Oh, that that just that just you know completely warms my heart because I agree. I think I think his material is timeless, and uh, it's just so exciting to know that young people get to discover him, and then they get. You know, then they have 30, 40 years of material to discover, you know, sure. and they get to do their own walk through the evolution of his mind and his approach to his art form. And, you know, what a gift that is, you yeah. know, also. But, yeah, that that just makes me smile. And, you know, I also know these days because of YouTube and social media that he's been uh, exposed to all sorts of people all over the planet now, which is amazing. I get emails from people in Pakistan and China and India and Iraq and Iran and, you know, who are like blown away by him and his speaking truth to power and and all of that. And I think, wow, you know, that's that is amazing. Well, that that is exactly right. So an unfiltered look at life is what he gave us all. And, And what I loved most about him is he said things we all wish we could say or the things that we all thought about but didn't use a platform to talk about it and as edgy as it is right now i'm thinking to myself in this world that we're living in uh, a political correctness right now i don't think your dad would give a damn about that i think he would still just be him in all of this uh, I agree. I mean, I think it would be very interesting to see his take because he did do and, and write a lot about political correctness, whether it was in his books or or on the stage. And he had some firm, firm comments about that and, and really was not happy by people trying to control language in the name of tolerance. And um, so and yet at the same time, he was very much um, a person who respected uh, women and people of color 
and minorities to be able to define their themselves and and you know and not be name called and you know sure. he was he was completely against bigotry and all that kind of stuff so he he really walked a very interesting line that is very different than some other people these days who want to have permission to be racist right right exactly. <laughs> or misogynist per- that's so, a very good way of putting um, it yeah, so yeah. it's an interesting but you know as far as controlling the language you know, he would definitely have had something to say about that these days and, and, and have a lot to say about it. Kelly, uh, cool sharing stories about your dad. Thank you. All right. Much more ahead on 720 WGN. You know, since the early 1960s and her first television appearances on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr, later Johnny Carson, the legendary comedian Joan Rivers has enjoyed a lifetime of unparalleled accomplishment as an Emmy Award-winning television talk show host, Tony Award-nominated actress, best-selling author, playwright, screenwriter, film director, columnist, lecturer, jewelry designer, and... <laughs> I'm going to get through it all. Okay. <laughs> and red carpet fashion laureate. And she has a new book out called Diary of a Mad Diva. And to talk about it all is the legendary Joan Rivers. Obviously, I've got ADD when you listen to that career. <laughs> but I, I believe, to try everything. If somebody comes up and says, you want to do this? You go, yeah, I'll do that. You've been, yeah, you've, and you've done it for o- almost five decades, which is absolutely yeah. incredible. Made a living making people laugh. How nice is that? It is, it is fabulous. Well, I got to tell you, when I was younger and watching the Tonight Show and they would announce, you know, that uh, tonight's guest host was Joan Rivers, I'd get so excited. I was thrilled that you were there for the day. For the week, I saw you with Rickles it, at the Foxwoods in Connecticut. You, you are oh absolute, yes, you're right. <laughs> I love him. What a what a fun. He's much funnier if you can believe it off stage than on. That, Hilarious. Yeah, that's well. As uh, as are you, and I have to get this out of the way. You know, there are times I've seen journalists, Joan, or hosts, interview someone that have no point of reference. I know you know what I'm getting at here. They don't know who oh. they're. They don't know who they're interviewing. They read a few lines on Wikipedia. Saw you on YouTube for a few seconds, and you did the CNN interview last weekend. And you know, it's like they never. They are oblivious of who you are. They've never seen your act in the past five decades. They don't understand the sense of humor. In my opinion, didn't understand in general that that we have to laugh at life sometimes, no matter what it is. Uh, this poor woman, looking back, uh, was going to. She thought she was in the Nuremberg trials, and I was Eichmann, <laughs> and she was going to break me. Why do you do? Why do you write? Did he say jokes? Why do you write about Casey Anthony? What do you write about? You go. Oh, who is this? Stupid person that is sitting there with no sleeves on dress. Every news broadcaster now doesn't wear sleeves. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's, that's a point of interest. And finally said, why are you wearing fur? I'm in a 15-year-old outfit on the cover. And I got nuts. Apparently I said to her, are you wearing leather shoes? Do you eat meat? Then shut up. Yeah. Unless you've got a paper belt on. And I walked off. I loved it. No, I loved it. But you know what? It's, it's what you've always done, though. I mean, that's who you are. And that's that's why we love Joke, you. you. Joke, you idiot. Comedians, comedians are there to make you laugh the way Taco Bell is there to give you diarrhea. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> has purpose in life. Exactly, exactly. But that's what you've always done. And and I read your book over the July 4th weekend, uh, Laugh Out Funny, and I saw your tweet on July 4th. It said, love being old on July 4th. I don't need a flag. My legs are white. My veins are red and blue. I just can't wave them around. <laughs> and yeah. that, but that's who you are. You, you've been hardest on yourself over the years. Always. Well, look at me. Any, you know, people always say you're so 
mean to celebrities. I always use the word mean. First of all, I'm talking about their clothes, so it's hardly mean, and they're making $30 million a year. But I always start with myself. You know, yeah. after we made love, my husband would always call out, was it good for anybody? <laughs> it, I would hardly call me, you know, I would never be a Kardashian, even if my name were Cone. It, it just wouldn't happen. <laughs> But you know what? I got to tell you, that's 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 exactly who you are. I love the ball busting, and that's what makes people laugh, and that's what you've been put on this planet to do, I think. Well, you know, Winston Churchill, and I've, I've been saying this because I just found the quote, said, if you make someone laugh, you give them a mini vacation. Well, that's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you laugh for a second, you forget the horror of what your body has turned into. You yeah. forget <laughs> That you hate your father, you forget that you know whatever you laugh, you can deal with it. Yeah, no one, no one can say that everybody's got their own thing. Everyone's got their own issues, their own problems, and you got to take a break from life a little bit, right? Have you ever sat down at a table? We're getting serious now, and a dinner table, and you start to talk to somebody next to you, and they start to tell you a story that you get up and you go, I can't believe you know how lucky I am when you hear the next person's. As you say, uh, Michigan. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm very, very, yeah. I just laugh at everything. That's how I get through life. You don't like it, don't buy the book. Absolutely. Here's just a taste, uh, folks, from from the vintage to the contemporary. Uh, Anne Frank's diary keeping skills. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you got J. Edgar, Edgar Hoover's fashion choices. Yes, very poor. <laughs> you loaned him some he, things, though, he didn't was you? Definitely an autumn, and he didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is off limits, and no one gets a pass. You got Jennifer Aniston, Heidi Klum, Lena Dunham, Tyra Banks, and here's some quips that could only come from you. If they're going to give an Oscar for a great five minute performance, then they should award it posthumously to Jackie Kennedy. She wowed me in the Zapruder film. <laughs> oh my God. I think Paris Hilton should step up to the plate and to try to prevent STDs. It would be so easy for her. All she would have to do is have her knees fused together. <laughs> this is pure Joan. This is pure you, man. It's just. A silly, funny book to read and laugh, and that's all. It's all I wanted to write, and taking it so seriously. Apparently, somewhere I said that Mrs. Obama looks like a tranny, and uh, you're not allowed to say tranny anywhere. Say transgender, excuse me. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not a I'm not a uh, heady anymore. I'm a heterosexual. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, everyone would say, "Why do you say?" You go, "It's a comedy book." Yeah, exactly. I, Comedians are having a very hard time these days, as you know, with political correctness. I mean, it's just reached the point of stupidity. Now, you call yourself a diva, by the way. Do you consider yourself high-maintenance? Are you a diva? Oh, I, 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 I only hire illegals so I can slap them. <laughs> okay, well, that, that answers my question. Then. I'm just going to say, I'm of Chicago, uh, and I'm not making the I could move there tomorrow and uh, be perfectly happy. It's a, it's a great city, and don't tell too many people. Yeah, I know you're you're not kidding. You always say San Francisco. You go, what are you at? Your mind rumble, rumble. There it goes. No Chicago, and you're on the water, you idiots. Yeah. And you got a beach. Let's calm down here. You know, the good audience. Well, I come out of Second City, and so I, that, right. I'm very. As I said, my heart is in Chicago. First place, I had some money in my pocket, and I was doing what I wanted to do. So it was a great time when I was there. Joan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Have a lovely, lovely, lovely rest of the evening. And that was one of Joan Rivers' final interviews and one of my personal favorites before she left us back in 2014. 
Well, that wraps up our stand-up comedy special. Top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom are next here on 720 WGN.